Well, today we're going to be looking at the 103rd Psalm. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible. And from the 103rd Psalm, we're going to see six important things that we need to know about God. Six things the 103rd Psalm tells us about what God is like. Of course, the entire Bible from beginning to end uh, reveals to us what God is like, uh, but we're going to see six specific things in today's text. And the six things that we'll see are things that show up over and over again uh, throughout the Bible. And so, as the title of the message says, they are really important things that we need to know about God. And in considering these six things that we need to know about God, I have two broad groups of people uh, in mind that I hope this message will be helpful to, and I believe every single one of us will fit into one of these groups. The first group that this message is for is that it's meant to serve as a reminder of what God is like for conservative Bible-believing Christians who sometimes need reminded of certain aspects of God's character. We'll talk about that quite a bit as we go forward. And then it's also meant as an appeal from the scriptures for anyone who has a misconception, who is living under a misconception of what God is like. And I'll explain that here in a few minutes as well. But first, let me say a few words to the conservative Bible-believing Christians who are here today, which knowing this church as I do, I think represents most of us that are here today. If I ask you to describe Living Hope Church, uh, or if I was asked, I should say, to describe Living Hope Church, there are a number of things that I would share with the person who was asking me for that description. First of all, I would mention that we are orthodox, meaning we affirm the essential truths of Scripture that have been believed in all times and in all places uh, by Christians. I would mention that we are evangelical, meaning that we believe Jesus is the only hope for mankind. And so we don't have this idea that like Jesus is just the right answer for us. We believe Jesus is the only answer for everyone, for the entire world. And so we feel an obligation, or at least we should feel an obligation, to share the gospel with people who do not know Christ. I would mention that even though we don't always walk in this power, that we are empowered evangelicals, meaning that we believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit that you find in the Bible are still relevant today, still in operation today, or at least are supposed to be in operation within the church today. I'd share that the mission of our church is to introduce people to Christ and develop them into maturing disciples of Jesus who then join in trying to continue that process with other people. And I'd mention, as Melissa did a few minutes ago, that our vision statement is connecting people with God and each other. And if they still wanted more of a description after that, uh, if I was wanting to give a fairly complete description of our church, I'd probably eventually get to the point where I would share with them that we are a conservative, Bible-believing church. A number of years ago, we asked our elders and leaders to list out words that they thought described our church. And conservative and Bible-believing were two of the most frequently listed. And I believe that that remains true today. I want to make a disclaimer here. 
Uh, while conservative churches often tend toward conservative politics and liberal churches often tend toward liberal politics, when we describe the church as being conservative, we are not, I'm not using that term in a political sense. A conservative church theologically is one that views the Bible as the inspired word of God, views the Bible as infallible, and believes that we have an obligation to submit our lives to God as we discover his will in the Bible. And so a conservative church theologically is one that takes the Bible really seriously and seeks to live according to what the Bible says. And so Living Hope Church is a conservative, Bible-believing church. And here are some of the things that means. It means we do believe the Bible to be the Word of God. We do believe the Bible to be inerrant in the original writings. In other words, it's right about everything it teaches rightly understood. We believe the Bible to be infallible. In other words, it's incapable of being wrong about anything it teaches rightly understood because God is incapable of being wrong. And the Bible is God's word. And because of these beliefs, we take living according to the teachings of the Bible very seriously. We don't see the Bible as something that we can just take what we want from it and discard the rest, even though we often live like that. But that, that's, that's, not what we, uh, that's not what we believe. That's not how we should live. Because we take living according to the Bible seriously, we actually seek imperfectly but we seek to hold one another accountable for our actions. That's why our membership commitment includes an affirmation by members that they are willing to be challenged should their lives come into a condition where they have significantly departed from biblical teaching and especially biblical morality and have strayed into significant ongoing sin. Because of these things, this is why we cannot go along with those parts of the church that embrace things like premarital sex, cohabitation of unmarried couples, and homosexuality as being acceptable for Christians. We simply cannot go along with that because we take the Bible seriously and we submit to what the Bible says. This is why we can't go along with those sections of the church that believe everyone will be saved, whether they receive Christ as Savior or not. This is why we can't go along with those who fail to uphold a belief in the infallibility of Scripture and instead talk about things like the Bible being our conversation partner. We, we can't go along with these things. This is why we will never, for the sake of getting along, compromise on any of these kinds of issues. These are all good things. Being a conservative, Bible-believing church is a good thing. Yet hear me today. There are dangers associated with something good like being a conservative, Bible-believing church. And here's one of the great dangers most everything that I've just explained that describes us to a very large extent was true of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. 
they were the conservative, Bible-believing Christians. Not Christians, you know what I'm saying. And they were the people that Jesus had some of the strongest words of rebuke and correction for. So let that sink in a minute. What is true of us was largely true of the Pharisees. And so the danger that churches like ours must be aware of is the danger of becoming modern-day Pharisees. I was getting a lot more nods a few minutes ago. <laughs> you see, Pharisees have a legitimate concern about believing right, thinking right, and doing right, which is good. But Pharisees often struggle with things that God is very inclined toward, things like grace, and mercy, and compassion. And Pharisees, in their zeal to think right, believe right, act right, do right, they would often respond very harshly toward people who did not think as right as they did, did not believe as right as they did, and especially did not act or do as right as they did. And if we are not careful, conservative, Bible-believing churches can become places where judgmentalism runs rampant, where there is no compassion for people whose lives don't measure up to the standard, where there is no mercy extended to people, where there is no grace offered to people. Conservative Bible-believing churches run the risk of reducing Christianity and a relationship with Jesus to a list of rules to keep and become places where people who have failed or who are currently failing to keep the rules feel condemnation, judgment, and unfortunately sometimes even disgust. We talk a lot about, uh, around here, I think, about the requirements of the faith. We, we talk a lot about the commands that God calls us to live according to, and that's appropriate. We talk a lot about the fact that Christianity is not an easy faith, but it is very demanding. I don't think I've used this next phrase for a while now, but over the years I have frequently reminded us that God isn't always patting you or me on the head telling us what great little boys and girls we are. God often needs to challenge us. All of this is true, but it's not all we need to know. You see, you don't understand the God, you don't understand God in Christianity if all you get is the demanding, the commandment-keeping, the discipline. If that's entirely your focus, you have missed God, and you have missed what Christianity is about. You only understand God and Christianity if you understand that the demanding God of the Bible is also a God that is full of mercy, grace, and compassion. And so the 103rd Psalm that we're considering today will remind us, conservative, Bible-believing Christians, that in all of our concern for believing right, thinking right, acting right, and doing right, we must always remember that our God is a God of mercy, grace, and compassion. 
And then there's another group of people that I believe God wants to speak to today through this 103rd Psalm. It's people who have been living with a misconception about what God is like. Your problem is different than the conservative Bible-believing Christian who, have made, who might have started becoming harder on others than what God is. Your problem's different than that. Your problem is that you have a misconception about God's stance toward you. You know what your life has been. You know the brokenness of your life. You know the wrong things that you have done. You're very aware of the ongoing sinfulness in your life. And somewhere along the way, you became convinced that God is mad at you, that God does not like you, that God is not favorable toward you, that you have messed up too bad for too long, and God is done with you. For those of you who might be in that group, the 103rd Psalm is an appeal to you regarding what God is really like, what his posture toward you really is. The 103rd Psalm lets us know that, lets you know, that God is not angry with you. God doesn't dislike you. God is not done with you. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He loves you. He is for you. He desires a relationship with you. He is merciful and gracious and compassionate toward you. This misconception you've had about God is a lie from the enemy of your soul that's intended to try to keep you from the God who is seeking you, who loves you, who wants to heal you, and wants to set you free. And so for the conservative Bible-believing Christians who need reminded, and for the person who's been struggling under a misconception about God, this 103rd Psalm reveals six important things that we need to know about God. Six important things about what God is like. And so let's look at it now. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I told the people who made the slides to start at verse 8. So on the screen, we'll start at verse 8. But I am going to read the entire chapter. Here's what we find. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. And now we're at verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. 
But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly host, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. There's obviously way more there than we can cover in one Sunday, but from these verses, let's consider six truths. The Bible-believing, conservative, God doesn't excuse sin, we need to believe right, think right, and act right Christians need to remember so that we respond properly to others that God loves. And six truths that those laboring under a misconception about God's posture toward you need to know. Here's the first one. We all need to know and remember that God is merciful. Verse 8 gives us a summary of what the next several verses will tell us in more detail. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and then verse 10 tells us that God is merciful. It says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And really, That right there is about all we should have to read about God to cause us to stop right where we are, bow our knees before him, and thank him from the bottom of our hearts. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Somebody should say amen louder. Amen. Amen. You know, we conservative, Bible-believing Christians sometimes forget the pits that we were in before receiving Christ as Savior. And sometimes it is good for us to remember who we were before Jesus got a hold of us. There's not one of us here today that we're not so deeply involved in sin, that we were beyond any hope of helping ourselves with God. Say, well, Brian, I, I, I never did drugs. I was never promiscuous. I, I never did any of that kind of stuff. You were still so deeply involved in sin that you had no chance of helping yourself with God. It is true for every one of us. But sometimes as God begins to work in our lives, as God begins to remove junk from us, we forget where we were and who we were apart from him. And we get confused. We start thinking of ourselves as good, upstanding people. And it often gets disconnected from the grace of God. And we look at those who we see as not being so good, not being so upstanding, and we can tend to become a little bit indignant over the sinfulness of others. 
We can develop harsh attitudes toward those who are bound by sin. We can develop attitudes that almost begin to hope for and relish the day when all of these sinful people get what's coming to them. And when we do this, we become modern-day Pharisees, and we grieve the heart of God because God is merciful, and God wants everyone to come to repentance. The word merciful has been defined as not getting what we deserve, and that would be consistent with its usage here. We are not treated as our sin deserves, and we aren't repaid according to the bad things that we've done. It's true that Christianity is a demanding faith. It's true that Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It is absolutely true that we are to believe right, think right, do right. But if you really know God, you know that God is merciful to people who don't think right and don't do right. And I'm thankful for that. Because I hate to inform you of this, but even though my role is as a pastor, I often don't think right and do right. I just don't. And I know you all well enough to know that you often don't think right or do right. I know this. And we all have to face the fact that even though God may have done an awful lot of cleaning up of our lives, there's a lot of cleaning up that still needs to be done. For, for the most submitted person to God here, there's a lot of cleaning up that still needs to be done. The most pious and upstanding among us still fall short of God's glory, still do wrong, still think wrong, still need a God who is merciful. Conservative, Bible-believing Christians still need a God who is merciful. We never outgrow our need of God's mercy. And if you're a person here today who is weighed down with guilt over the wrong things you've done and you're afraid that God is done with you, I want you to hear this very clearly. God, the God revealed in the Holy Bible, is merciful towards sinful people. Let me say it again and add a word. The Holy God revealed in the Holy Bible, is merciful towards sinful people. God is merciful toward you. He doesn't want you to be treated as your sins deserve. He doesn't want you to be repaid according to your iniquities. What, what does he want for us instead? He wants us to receive his grace. And that's the second important thing we need to know about God. God is gracious. Verse 11 tells us how much God loves us. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is, is his love for those who fear him. And then verse 12 tells us about the grace God wants to extend to us because of how much he loves us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Why? Because I have a lot of transgressions. I realize that's not a good thing. I realize it's not 
going to be good to stand before a holy God with a boatload of transgressions attached to me. And so this verse gives me the assurance that I need. All those transgressions that I've committed, God has removed them from me as far as the east is from the west if I have turned to him in faith. So they're not going to be attached to me because God has removed them from me. How far is the east from the west? I guess we could say infinity, but that's a little hard to grasp, so let's just say it this way. God has removed the sins of those who have come to faith in Christ from them so far that they're never going to find their way back to attach themselves to us or condemn us ever again. Mercy has been defined as not getting what we deserve. Grace has been defined as getting what we don't deserve. I don't deserve for God to remove my sins from me. But through the cross of Jesus Christ, he not only doesn't repay me according to my sins, but he removes my sins from me. He takes my sin away, and he gives me his righteousness instead. And so I don't, I don't have to have my sin hanging around me. It's not condemning me before God, because he has removed it from me permanently, and it can't find its way back. If you know that your life hasn't been living up to God's best for you, it is right, it's appropriate for you to feel conviction about that. But you also need to know that God is merciful. You also need to know that God wants to extend grace to you if you'll just receive his grace. When we receive his grace, we have our sins removed from us, as our text said, as far as the east is from the west. We simply acknowledge that we're sinners. We confess our sin to God. We ask him to forgive us and to cleanse us and allow his Holy Spirit to empower us to turn away from it. That's all we have to do. God wants to extend grace to you. No matter what you've done, no matter how deep in the sin you've gone, no matter how many times you've returned to the same sin, you need to know that God remains merciful toward you. He remains gracious toward you. And he wants you to receive his grace. I heard a pastor probably 30 some years ago make a statement that I've never forgotten. I've reflected on it so many times. It's been so meaningful to me and I hope it will be to you as well. And maybe you've heard this from someone else. He said, God's grace is greater than your disgrace. God's grace is greater than your disgrace. No matter what you've done, God's grace is greater than that sin that you've committed. Scripture tells us that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. You have not done anything too bad to prevent you from receiving God's grace. His grace is greater than whatever you have done. We conservative Bible-believing Christians need to be careful that we don't lapse from grace to works and begin thinking we earn our way with God because we don't. We have never earned our way with God and we never will. It's an impossibility. Our only hope is that God is merciful 
and gracious. And because he is, we ought to be. A response to sin and sinners should not be shock, horror, and disgust. It should be mercy and grace. I didn't warn you before I started that I have a long sermon today. So hold in there with me. The third truth we learn from the 103rd Psalm about what God is like is that he is compassionate. He's compassionate. Early in my adulthood, I remember being in a church where the preacher said, God doesn't respond to you out of compassion. He only responds to faith. That's similar to how he said it. I couldn't quite pull it off, but that was getting within the ballpark of how he said it. I felt it was wrong when he said it. Not that God doesn't respond to faith. He absolutely does. But the dismissal of a compassionate component to God's dealing with us felt wrong to me. And it is wrong. The 103rd Psalm, verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. To really know God, we have to know that he's merciful. We have to know that he's gracious. We have to know that he is compassionate. To be compassionate is to be someone who has strong feelings of sympathy and sorrow over others' difficulties, including having a desire to help to alleviate their suffering, to help them with their difficulty. God is not unmoved by our troubles. God is deeply affected by our troubles. He's affected by our sicknesses. He's affected by our financial struggles. He's affected by our broken relationships. And God is affected by our sin. And not just in a, you're breaking my laws sort of way. Not just in that way. But in a, that is so harmful to you. Please, for your own good, stop doing that sort of way. God is affected by our sin. Conservative Bible-believing Christians must always remember that our Lord is compassionate toward people who are ensnared by sin. And we need to be compassionate toward them as well. And those of you who have labored under the misconception that God looks at us in our failures to live right and says to us, like Yoda, there is no try, only do, you need to know that God is compassionate. He understands our frame. He knows that we're weak. And while he never excuses our sin, he is compassionate toward us, and he wants to rescue us out of sin, not condemn us to remain in sin. And that's our next point. Closely connected with God's compassion is this truth about God from verse 14 and verse 8. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we're dust. And then verse 8, the Lord is slow to anger. Merciful, gracious, compassionate. He understands us. He knows we're weak. And because he knows this, the psalmist says he is slow to become angry with us. 
Now, this is not an excuse for us to sin. It is not for us to take this and say, well, we're just all weak people. God understands, so whatever. That's not, that's not the right response to this truth. But it is true that God does understand we're weak. He does understand that we are really susceptible to sin. He understands this because he made us. He has seen from the very beginning of this whole human thing how easily we walk away from him. And while we should never use it as an excuse to sin, we should know that when we do, God really does understand us and how weak we are. That's exactly why he sent Christ to die for us. Because he knew we could not live the way we were supposed to live apart from the salvation we could find in Christ and the empowering that we could receive from the Holy Spirit. And so when you sin, understand that God understands your weakness. And in compassion, he wants you to turn to him for strength. Not because he's mad at you for sinning, but because he knows that sin brings destruction to your life and he does not want us to experience the fallout that sin always brings to our lives. And God is slow to anger. God hates sin. He hates it. But God is slow to become angry with sinners. God is more patient and long-suffering with us than we can imagine. He's been working with human beings for a long time. So your frailty, your inclination toward wrong, it has not caught him by surprise. It hasn't. God is like an experienced therapist. He's seen it all before. He knows the deal. And he's very patient as he works with us. And even when God does become angry with us, which, which I believe God does. I mean, the psalmist says he's slow to become angry. He doesn't say he never becomes angry. But even when God does become angry with us, it is the anger of a parent who can't stand to see their child destroy their life, not the anger of a dictator whose commands have been violated. It's the anger of a parent who can't stand to watch what we're doing to ourselves. Conservative Bible-believing Christian, God's posture toward weak people needs to be our posture toward weak people. And those who have labored under the misconception that God is like a dictator, angry with you that you violated his commands, I pray today that you begin to see him as he really is. He is your loving father who simply cannot stand to see what sin is doing to your life. He does not want your life destroyed by sin. What we need to know about God, merciful, compassionate, gracious, <clears throat> understanding, slow to become angry. And all of this flows out of the fifth important thing we need to know about God. Look at verse 17. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And then again in verse 8, the Lord is abounding in love. He's abounding in love. For all of us, he's abounding in love for you 
there is an overflow of love. God does not have a finite amount of love for you. His love isn't in short supply, like lives in a video game. You know how that works, right? You're playing a video game, you have three or four, seven or nine lives, and every time you mess up, you, you lose a life. Screen tells you you're getting short on lives. Better do something to get more lives. God's love isn't like that. It isn't like you mess up and God's love supply is reduced. And then you mess up again and his love supply is reduced a little bit more. <clears throat> and then you mess up again and the screen begins flashing. You're in danger of exhausting God's love supply for you. It isn't like that. God is abounding in love for you. From everlasting to everlasting, his love is with you. We just keep coming back to him, keep turning to him in faith. I think this is a good place to remind you that this chapter of the Psalms was likely written by David. Well, that's debated by some, but he's the likely author. He is the author that tradition affirms. And you, you know David, right? Most of you know David. David, who saw a woman bathing on a housetop when he should have been off fighting uh, with his army. He was filled with lust. And because he was the king, he could do whatever he wanted to do. And so he sent for someone to bring this woman to him. Had a sexual relationship with her. It resulted in her getting pregnant David didn't want that to be discovered, so he brought her husband home who was fighting uh, with, with the army that David should have been with, tells the husband to go and enjoy your wife. The husband was a man of great honor, and he didn't want to engage in that kind of pleasure while his uh, military friends were fighting, and so he refused to, to uh, be intimate with his wife. Hmm. David's plan was messed up. How do I cover over my sin? How do I do this? And so, this led David to have Bathsheba's husband killed. David, an adulterer. David, a murderer. This David, who the prophet Nathan confronted over his sin, and David repented, and if you haven't read his beautiful prayer of repentance in the 51st Psalm in a while, you should do that. David, King David, big time sinner. The Bible also tells us that David is a prophet, a priest, and a king. He knew from revelation and experience what God is like. And so he writes, this adulterer, this murderer, from the experience of his own sin, and he tells us that God is merciful, God is gracious, God is compassionate, he's understanding, he's slow to anger, he abounds in love. You have not sinned any worse than David. God was merciful and gracious and compassionate to him, and he's merciful and gracious and compassionate to you. He's understanding. He's slow to anger. 
is abounding in love. You're not going to exhaust his love for you. He has more love and mercy and grace than you'll ever need. And now the sixth thing we need to know about God, found in verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. I need to know, we need to know, you need to know that God is sovereign. He is the supreme ruler over everything. Here's my interpretation of verse 19. Since God is the supreme ruler over all, he can be as merciful, gracious, compassionate, and loving as he wants to be, and he chooses to provide more mercy, grace, compassion, and love than you or I can ever exhaust. This is what God is like. This is what you need to know about God. Conservative, Bible-believing, think-right, do-right Christians need to be reminded what God is like. Especially if we're starting to cross over into modern-day Phariseeism, we really need to be reminded what God is like. And people weighed down by the guilt of sin need to be reminded what God is like. And so if you're here today weighed down by past sin, you're racked with guilt and condemnation, or maybe you're even currently involved in sin, and, and even though you, you know you should, you haven't allowed God to provide the strength to set you free from it, it's important that you know right now, even if you're involved in sin, that God is merciful toward you. He wants to extend grace to you. He is compassionate toward you. He's slow to become angry. And even when he does become angry, it's the anger of a parent who doesn't want to see you destroying your life. God is abounding in love. He wants to set you free from sin. He wants to set you free from the guilt of sin because he wants your best. And he knows that sin is destructive for you. This God who is merciful and gracious and compassionate is also sovereign. He can and he will forgive your sin. And if you'll let him, he'll supply the power you need to break free from the bondage of sin and the guilt of sin. David knew these things about God. Is it any wonder that he ends this chapter with these words? Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Adulterer, murderer, recipient of God's mercy, grace, compassion. It's no wonder that he breaks forth in praise to God. Think about your life. Think about God's grace. If we think correctly, when we view our lives in the context of God's grace, it should result in us breaking forth in praise to God. Praise the Lord. God, thank you for your mercy, your grace, your compassion toward me. We conservative Bible-believing Christians need to always remember what God is like and follow his example in our posture towards sinful people. He's gracious, we're to be gracious. He's merciful, we're to be merciful. He's compassionate, we're to be compassionate. We need to give ourselves to being agents of God's love to people weighed down by sin and shame who desperately need to know these truths. 
about God. It's good to be a conservative, Bible-believing church. But we must always remember that God is merciful, gracious, compassionate, and that's what we're supposed to be as well. Let's stand.